property perspective for the OEMs, it's a very favorable backdrop. Inventory is high, transaction prices is high, incentives are in line with where they're supposed to be, and the product mix is extremely rich. From our remote offices in the New York tri-state area, welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. This podcast offers conversations with our analysts to get their perspective and expertise on the global credit markets. If you are an investment professional that touches the wide universe of fixed income, you will want to give us a listen. We are a team of nearly 100 analysts who originate research to more than 15,000 readers across global credit markets. We are back after a year-end hiatus and start with a discussion with Hitna Anand, our U.S. Head of Industrials and our Senior Autos Analyst. I am Christopher Snow, the U.S. Head of Research. Thanks for joining us. Let's begin. Last year was a tough year for everyone, but specifically in the auto sector, we had global sales production down to uh, mid-teens, 16% year-over-year. But hidden, you see a mid-teens recovery in 2021. Consensus estimates appear to put the industry back on course this year, even if not quite to the levels of pre-pandemic. You know, what are you looking at as the top positive catalyst, top negative catalyst, and maybe the key variable that you think could go either way? Yeah, thank you, Chris, for having me on the podcast. So 2020 was a hard year for global auto sales, as you pointed out, were down. But looking out at 2021, we are expecting sales to be up around 9%. But what's more interesting is that production is expected to be up double digits. And if you look at the sales cadence and uh, where the rebound is supposed to happen in 2021, you're really seeing a lot of it happening in the emerging markets of South America and South Asia, with the supposed to be up 22% and 15%. But looking at the developed markets and the three largest markets that really matter to most credit investors, which is of U.S. and Europe, is supposed to be up about double digits and China is supposed to be up about five digits. You know, drilling down specifically in the U.S. market, we're expecting a 9-10% growth in sales, but a 25% increase in production. And that very large increase in production is really driven by pent-up demand, very short on inventory. And that's really the big driver of sales in 2021. New model launches are being introduced into the marketplace and a very low interest rate environment. Those are sort of the big drivers if you look at the sales. The one thing I would say is that even though we're expecting an increase in sales on a year-over-year basis in the U.S., but we will still be down about 6%. Uh, from 2016 levels, which was the peak in this cycle. So yes, it's a gradual recovery, but still down from um, uh, you know peak levels. Uh, and same as some of the same drivers still exist. Uh, so where are we in the marketing cycle, right? So are the OEMs are they are they clearing inventory? I mean, you obviously noted the big rebound in production. Are we seeing discounted pricing? You know, are they feeling well positioned right now? You actually bring up a good point there, Chris, because if you look at what's happening here and why is production increasing 25% while sales is increasing only 9-10%, and the big driver is the tight inventory. We ended the year with you know nearly two-decade low in inventory levels in the U.S., and that's partly a lot of it is to be done uh, to be with the dislocation from COVID that we had in production volumes. So we have inventory shortages right now. We are in a global supply chain. So that has been a big hindrance in uh, getting back inventory where we need it to be. In fact, if you look at 1Q21 already, it made the headlines that there is a microchip shortage and that's affecting global production and global sales. So that inventory shortage is a, a big driver. Uh, now, what that does in turn is actually improves the pricing ability of the automakers. And what you saw here is average transaction prices in the U.S. are at record levels of around $39,000. 
and that high average transaction prices in turn resulting in actually a very reduced discounting to your point. So we did see, you know, in the depths in April and May of last year where incentive spending was a little bit higher. But right now, incentive spending for the whole year is pretty much in line with the 2019 levels and in fact, uh, a bit lower than 2018 levels. So I would say if you look everything put in perspective for the OEMs, it's a very favorable backdrop. Inventory is high. Transaction prices is high. Incentives are in line with where they're supposed to be. And the uh, product mix is extremely rich. Gotcha. Let's drill into the two big players in the U.S., the two, two largest players, you know, Ford and GM. You know, 2020 was a much harder year for Ford than GM. They lost their investment grade rating to boot. In terms of their challenges ahead, you know, how much are those challenges sector-based? Are they Ford-specific? And then, you know, do you, you know, how much do you weight executional risk as a factor in potential backsliding on, you know, the otherwise anticipated progress? Yeah, good point. So, uh, yeah, 2020, you know, Ford was already struggling coming into the year because they were having their own operational execution issues or turnaround. They were caught in a bad sort of product and uh, operating cycle. And it had uh, already become a quarter by quarter sort of uh, conversation as to when will they be turning to high yield. And when the pandemic sort of hit, that was uh, the last straw on the, uh, that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And the agencies would not want to write that through uh, with an investment grade rating for Ford and rightly so. So, you know, 2021 is going to be a big year of rebound just for global autos, and that's going to benefit Ford particularly. So that industry shift helps, but a lot of actions that Ford has been taking over the last several years, hopefully they are going to really start come to come to fruition and they get operating leverage out of the restructuring actions they have t- taken, the structural costs that they have taken out. So 2021 is going to be a big year for them. So I think it's going to be, to, 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 your, to your question, the industry rebound will help, and more importantly, uh, I think a lot of the actions that they've taken will start to start showing some rotation in 2021. Uh, do you think Ford wants to get back to investment grade? And I guess whether or not they speak to it, you know, what's as soon as you think that that could occur? Yeah, so they have always sort of maintained that they want to have IG-like metrics and want to sort of keep guiding that, guiding them to be there. And it's, you know, very important or more so important for their uh, captive finance, which is in the financing business as $100 plus billion book. It really helps the cost of operating business there. So it will be nice to have. And as I said, I think 2021 could be an interesting year for them and the most uh, critical one to get EBITDA in place. I think if we look at the way the forecast land, they should start getting to IG-like metrics by the end of 2021. And I would think that 2022, second half is when you really start to see the market sort of start to appreciate the path to IG, even if it doesn't necessarily happen then. So 2021 is the big one to look out for and to see those improvements come through. And by second half 2022, if they continue to show the progress, both on the regional positioning, product positioning, and then the overall market sort of stabilizing, that that should start showing up in spreads, even if not in ratings, so to speak. Okay, thanks. I'd like to turn to a, a topic that was sort of had heightened scrutiny last year, sort of the peak pandemic and, you know, more broadly looking at the, you know, recovery and the corporate landscape and thinking about travel and those sorts of things. You know, one of the key uncertainties, you know, thinking back maybe to, to April, May of last year, there's lots of anxiety around the disruption from the rental car companies, you know, whether it was that, you know, the disruptions to those businesses was going to flood the used car market with unused vehicles, putting some pressure on pricing 
in the primary market or or perhaps the lack of demand from those guys for new cars as you know they obviously don't have the same need to replenish inventory yeah how did that turn out and you know are you concerned at all about the kind of the, the cadence of rental car industry at the moment yeah, no, fleet is a big part of, you know, the new vehicle sales to begin with. So a couple of things happened here. The fleet sales, to put it in context, fleet accounted for about 20% of overall new vehicle sales in 2019. In 2020, as we kind of discussed early on, uh, U.S. sales declined about 14, 15%, but fleet sales declined 40%. So that was a big sort of driver for overall sales decline. And what did in fact happen is that fleet sales, fleets were able to defleet in 2020 as the used vehicle prices actually held up fairly well. And that in, that in fact uh, took away some more sales from new new vehicle market as well. But looking ahead, and, and as you sort of alluded to, is as travel sort of come back, we will see fleet sales come back. We estimate about 50% of lost sales to come back in 2021. But that will still mean that they are down about 20% from their peak levels in 2019. So, yeah, so we're expecting a recovery in fleet that should add about half a million unit in new vehicle sales in 2021, but certainly not back to where it was in 2019. And just to, to put some context, so fleet accounted for 20% of overall new vehicle sales in 2019, dropped around 14% in 2020, and we expect them to climb back to around 16% in 2021. Gotcha. Thank you. Let's turn to another big topic. It sort of affects you know, the broader corporate landscape and, and hopefully drill into what the implications are for the auto sector. And that's the, the the political environment. We obviously had the political calendar that extended into January with the Democrats picking up the 50th seat in the Senate, which gives them tentative control of, uh, of the legislature and the executive. And that would in turn give some momentum to the greening agenda. What do you think happens this year? Yeah, so this is actually going to be uh, um, a very interesting and uh, um, and a tailwind. Uh, the political backdrop actually is a tailwind for uh, uh, U.S. auto sales in some ways. So a couple of things that we do know uh, will most likely transpire. Uh, one is uh, the Obama administration had put to, uh, put forth uh, uh, a strong sort of cafe standards, which uh, which resulted in better fuel economy, reduced tailpipe emissions, and those those were pulled back by the Trump administration. So at the very least, we expect the Biden administration to sort of reintroduce those. And what that would Oh, and that will be supported by some kind of an incentive, incentives to help sort of transition over there, whether it is consumer incentives like we saw back in 2009 in terms of cash for clunkers or some version of that to facilitate that transition to a better, greener fuel fleet in the U.S. And then there is also this government spending plan that was put put together as part of the infrastructure plan, which 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 allowed for, which has provision rather for the government fleet to be more green in nature, be more fuel economy, and uh, mainly around electric vehicles. And then there is this aspect of around building an infrastructure, largely charging infrastructure, and all of that should support the transition to more of an electric vehicle fleet in the U.S., generally speaking. So I think the, uh, the push towards green is going to provide some tailwind to demand if it's accompanied by some incentives. Right. So, and I, and I guess we have GM, which made a major announcement recently targeting, you know, combustion-free portfolio, I, I believe starting in, in, in 2035. You know, what can we expect from that 
more broadly in the industry, you know, the, the electrification trend, you know, is it more CapEx? Is it more volatile cash flows? You know, are we going to see a longer term shift in operating margins? What are the implications from this shift? Sure. I think I'll preface this by saying that I think EVs are at an inflection point in the U.S. and 2021 is that inflection point. And the reason we are at an inflection point in the U.S. for electric vehicle adoption rate are threefold. One is the tech innovation that has already been happening over the last decade that has been materially reduced battery costs that's helping. And then the third point is the Biden administration green agenda plan. So you put all of these three together, that sort of supports the green adoption coming through an electric vehicle. And that flows into what GM has had communicated its plan already for the last couple of years that they want to have a zero emission future. So the timing of this is not surprising. And, and uh, in some ways, the, the, the backdrop has been very favorable and perfect for that adoption rate. Now, what, what is it going to do? So I think a couple of things here. R&D cost, I think, have, as I said, the development, whether it is done at a company level or an industry level, was already happening. And U.S. in some ways is actually very late to the adoption of electric vehicles or at least to support the promotion of electric vehicles, whereas China and Europe are already leading that. So to the extent that uh, all the global automakers were participating in those markets and all the leading ones were, they had already spent uh, a lot of R&D to continue to develop those kind of fuel-efficient vehicles. What is it to do to CapEx? Yes, there will be required retooling of uh, existing factories to allow for the shift of powertrain. And GM uh, and Ford and all the leading automakers already have a largely aggressive CapEx plan for the next two or three years. And thirdly, on the margin front, so what, what we can look at Tesla as sort of an example. Tesla, uh, you know, is the newest player to be able to come up with an all-electric plan. And you look up to uh, Tesla's ability to generate strong double-digit margins, healthy free cash flow. And so, so the margin trend is there. And I think we will be at this sort of an interesting point where we are not, it's, it's not a flip switch to electric vehicles. And we're in this transition period where the overall mix of internal combustion engines is extremely very healthy, very strong with COVs. As I mentioned earlier, average transaction prices are really high. So that's a cash cow right now and generating extremely high margins. And that's going to complement any kind of modestly inferior margins that may occur at the ramp-up period for electric vehicles. So net-net, I think this is the transition could not have happened at a better time, uh, given that uh, everything else that's working in the traditional auto business, so to speak, or the internal combustion auto part of the business is extremely solid as well. Well, I guess the, the other part of that equation is the demand side. So, you know, what do we know about customer tastes here? I mean, Tesla is obviously capturing a lot of headlines they're doing quite well, but they, they, they still are a fairly small player in the, the, the overall automobile market here in the U.S. And, and, you know, there's a certain argument that they redefined luxury, which is attracting so much interest in their cars, you know, as much as it is, is the green implication. You know, if the, the rest of the industry and, and MCGM has made that big announcement, you know, converts, why are customers buying their cars? You actually bring up a very good point. So we are in this sort of transition period where really the viable uh, electric vehicle right now is Tesla. So there has been an adoption of that, the only adoption or uh, aggressive adoption there. But if you kind of think about why consumers and where the consumers are migrating over, powertrain is just part of it, but it is really the integration of communication, mobility solutions, over-the-air updates, and all those sort of autonomous driving. All of those when come together, and those are the features that are attracted around the Tesla model. 
and the Tesla sort of ecosystem. And if you look forward, fast forward five or 10 years, if the green agenda plan of the Biden administration sort of takes place the way at least it's worked out in Europe and in China, you will see that EV adoption will and some version of it becomes mandatory or the preferred powertrain of choice. So then the distinguishing is really going to come from the other factors of autonomy and connectivity and mobility. And GM is actually a very strong second contender, so to speak, after Tesla right now, given the cruise business that they have, which recently got, the last month, got the funding from Microsoft as well, who joined SoftBank and Honda in its partnership and values just the GM cruise business at $30 billion. So I think what I'm trying to get at here is to explain that the future of uh, for vehicles is not going to be differentiated by electric vehicles. It's going to be this whole ecosystem of technologies that sort of integrate each other, integrate with each other, and they work best on the electric platform. So that's autonomous driving, connected vehicles, and mobility solutions that all happen on an EV platform. So EV is the bedrock of innovation and for integration of other technologies, which GM certainly has and is at the forefront of. And all other automation are also pretty much getting there in some capacity or the other. So Tesla has had a leading advantage and I think they're setting sort of the expectation for the other automakers globally to meet, beat or exceed. Right. So Tesla has been leading edge and they exceeded you know, my expectations. I'm not an auto analyst, but they, they seem to have exceeded most people's expectations, uh, except perhaps Elon Musk in terms of operational execution. You know, and now, at least, you know, if we put the hat on as a, a credit analyst, they, they can, they're sort of poised to be judged as a traditional credit, you know, the positive EBITDA, free cash flow, leverage coverage metrics. You know, if that's right, you know, what's the apples to apples comparison to, let's just say, a Ford as a high yield peer company? You know, or do they, you know, do they exceed on growth? Is it, uh, you know, how do they do on margins? You know, how much do they need, you know, some of these things like regulatory credits? Very good question that you bring up there, Chris, as well, is uh, they, what, what Tesla has shown is the uh, ability to quickly turn around the story and get operating leverage from their uh, one factory, which they have now expanded into two, and the third one is getting ramped up, uh, or, two, or two of them are getting ramped up in 2021. So the growth story and the margins have been impressive. If on a reported basis, you look at their margins around 19%, uh, but about $1.6 billion of that was regulatory credits in 2020. Uh, so if you start excluding that for an apples to apples comparison, as you mentioned, you still end up around 15% margins, which actually are not too dissimilar from what GM North America generates here. So I think uh, one, uh, that is a, a more appropriate and a fair characterization. Uh, and secondly, that is also an inspiring thing for other automakers to look at and say uh, they, they are generating margins in line with where a very solidly profitable GM North America does. So uh, the other part of the equation is where are they on the credit metrics? So we spoke a little bit, I think you asked about uh, where does Ford transition over to IG again? So right now, if you look at the metrics uh, of Tesla, they're closer to, or in fact, uh, in, uh, the way I look at it, they're actually the strongest among the triple B, double B peer set that we have, which includes GM, Ford, and Nissan. Uh, and Tesla has a quicker and a better path to cross over to IG before Ford can, if, if the agency sort of look at it uh, in a more objective fashion. Still, I don't think it's a 2021 event, but quite, quite possibly in 2022. Oh, thanks, Hinton. 
So let's finish up with one question, which I think, you know, fits in with the sort of the general pessimism that you might see from a credit analyst. One of the challenges in this market is that the macro has overwhelmed the micro and whether it's the Fed support or the train of fiscal stimulus or, you know, obviously the focus on the cadence of the vaccine and its recovery. So it's really been hard to have a nuanced view and it's been particularly hard to have a, a negative view, you know, just looking at the, the temperature of the market overall. But I'd like to ask you, you know, what are you looking at that, that investors should be you know, concerned about or that investors should avoid? Well, that's a hard one, especially given the backdrop that you mentioned that the Fed is supportive and the auto industry itself is poised for uh, a sort of the robust recovery that it is looking at. It is hard to get defensive around uh, the recovery and the metrics. Uh, I think the one thing uh, I would sort of uh, uh, look at is uh, keep a track on, uh, you know, any of these new variants of uh, uh, um, the vaccine and how the efficacy of the vaccine is. And, uh, because that has the ability to sort of impact the production trends and the whole recovery that's by is based on this robust recovery and if there is any stalling of that i think that sort of flows through in in all the bullishness around the auto market recovery so i would i would remain optimistic but cautious around the vaccine efficacy and any more shutdown so to speak okay well, this has been great, Hinton. Really appreciate that you spent the time. And, you know, there's no shortage of things to look at in the auto sector. And, and some of it, quite frankly, is pretty exciting when you think about the future that is to come. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Chris. And thank you, listeners. As always, you can find our research on our website, creditsites.com. Or if you are not a subscriber, please contact us at sales at creditsites.com. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or produced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information complained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Received by the listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.